I invite you to open your Bible with me to the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. I uh, was blessed last week to got to go back and listen to uh, Reverend Dean Tim speak, and as he shared with us, he also shared from Luke's Gospel, and uh, so we're going to pick up there, Luke's Gospel, chapter one. And I invite you to, as we after we read this, to keep your Bible open. Everything I'm going to say is from the text. I, really have nothing other to, to say as a preacher than what the Bible has to say. So I hope that you'll keep your Bible open and follow along with me. Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 5. Let's read together uh, the word of the Lord. There were in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. They were old and so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he, John, will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered for so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. 
Now after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. O great God from Luke's orderly account, bring forth within us greater certainty and deeper faith concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever wished for one great opportunity? One wishing maybe for one great moment in your life? Most young people imagine a special day in life where they have one chance to shine, one moment to really excel, to do something great, to excel academically and maybe to be recognized for it or to be achieve something in the area of music and be rewarded. Can you imagine making that magical putt on the last hole and sealing the state championship for your high school team. When I was younger, I have memories of closing my bedroom door and with a football in my hands, I would toss it up in the air and then I would throw it up and throw it out a little bit and then would dive and catch it on the stretched out and land on the bed thinking about making that great, great catch on the end zone winning the game. Last weekend, my son and I sat in Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis and watched the Wolverines extend their winning streak to a perfect season record of 13-0, winning another Big Ten championship for a second year and earning a spot in the college playoffs. And throughout the game, player after player made dynamic plays, bringing 70,000 fans screaming to their feet. It was a great moment for players and coaches alike, not so much for the Purdue fans, but I guess it's a, just a part of youthful wonder to dream of special moments like that in life. The text that we read presents a man who experienced one of, if not the greatest moment in his entire lifetime. A priest named Zacharias was blessed beyond anything he could have ever imagined with the experience of serving in the temple, offering incense and prayer on behalf of God's people. What happened to him became the pinnacle, the highlight of his priestly career. It was so great, I'm sure that he was not even able to believe it. In the first chapter of Luke's gospel, we discover there are two birth announcements made. The first, in verse 5, is the announcement of John the Baptist. And then later we'll see in verse 26, in the weeks to come, the annunciation, the announcement of Jesus. Prior to Israel's history, there, were, there had been no announcements like this. In fact, if you know your Bible, from the period of Malachi until this birth announcement, there were 400 years where there was no announcement at all. In fact, there was no word from God whatsoever. It's referred to a silent period, a 400 age where God didn't speak at all to anyone. And now that silence is broken. 
by the announcement of a child to be born, a forerunner who would prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. It's striking that Luke doesn't begin his gospel announcing the birth of Jesus, but announcing the birth of John. Conveying the idea to me, really, and, and to all of us of the importance that God places on spiritual preparation. Now, let me just add, I hope that you are preparing. Advent is about coming about the preparation, the coming of the Messiah. And so I hope that you're doing some things individually to prepare yourself to worship on the day of his birth. And I would also add, my favorite, my favorite Christmases are always when they fall on the 25th. Now, you may not like it. I, it's my favorite because I don't think there's any greater way to celebrate Christmas with family and friends than to gather with God's people and to worship. And so I look forward to two weeks. And it's only two weeks from now, right? You understand that. So preparation, making preparation. My thoughts from the text this morning just kind of can be categorized under four headings. And that is a, a king, a priest, an angel, and a people. A king, a priest, an angel, and God's people. So let's consider these. Look at Starting in verse 5, all of this takes place during the days of a king named Herod. Luke writes a real account about real time in secular history. Some of you who are younger may ask yourself, does the Bible really have any application to my life? Does it intersect with real time and with actual relevance? And Luke would demonstrate an answer of yes to that question. Luke's gospel is amplified or backed up by real historical facts. There are two well-known historians, a Jewish historian named Josephus and a Roman historian named Octavius, and both of those historians from a Jewish and a Roman perspective give credence to everything that Luke writes about in these announcements. It's just to support the historical reliability of Luke's gospel. Joseph, Josephus, I'm sorry, describes Herod as a real king. And in his writings, he describes him as a real piece of work in the worst sense. He describes King Herod as being capable. He was very adept at things. He was a wonderful orator, could hold the attention of an audience. He was an amazing builder. Uh, he built great buildings that dotted the skyline throughout the city. And one of his particular building accomplishments was he rebuilt the temple. Almost, he built, that construction occurred under Herod's reign for almost 50 years. He was also a great military strategist. This, this man, this King Herod was no slouch. He was very capable, but he was also crafty just really two word, nice of a word for him. He was a cover-up cover expert. He was a master politician. In Luke 13, some of the Pharisees come to Jesus and tell Jesus to leave, to depart from that area, for King Herod wants to kill you. And then later, Jesus responds to Herod's son, Antipas, and refers to him as a fox, like father, like son. He was crafty. He was... Capable, crafty, and also very cruel. 
Records show that King Herod had 10 wives, wives who feared him because he was so abusive. If you remember, it was this Herod who ordered the slaughter of all baby boys in and around Jerusalem because he was paranoid. He heard about one who was born a Jewish king who might threaten his place. His cruelty was demonstrated by the fact that jealousy led him to murder one of his brother-in-laws, Aristobulus. He planned a special party and had him drowned in the pool. This Herod ordered the murder of one of his wives named Mary Ann because he suspected her of talking badly about him. Herod murdered one of his mother-in-laws. He murdered three of his 12 sons. It was said of Herod, this is a quote historically from Octavius from the Roman records, it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his sons for he had a better chance of living a long, prosperous life. And so in a time of political and social chaos, in a time of spiritual darkness under the ruler of a leader who was capable and crafty and cruel, God was still at work. When his people had received no word, no message from God for 400 years, when they were oppressed and feeling hopeless by the political and financial pressures of the day, God was still with them, working in spite of their sins. God is still at work in your life and my life in spite of our sins. And it's because of grace, because of grace. Some of you here this morning may be thinking, well, that's how I feel about my life. That's how I see things. I'm living under the influence of some crafty and cruel people. And I feel forgotten. And God seems far away. He seems removed from me. And perhaps you've not heard his voice for a long time, and you don't feel that God is close to you, wondering if he's still around. This text would be a word of the Lord to you, and the answer is a profound yes. And it's most likely that God will show up and intervene and work in your life through some unexpected ways at unexpected times. A couple of weeks ago, our son-in-law it's Crohn's disease, and he's uh, 32 years of age, and it flared up on him, and he was admitted to the hospital for some emergency surgery, some blockage, and uh, some issues, and we were praying for him, and so they um, opened him up and worked on his insides, and pretty long surgery, and he's very sick, and spent the week in the hospital, and we were there with them. And, and I, I tell you that to say, to make this point, he was discharged from the hospital. He got home, and when Minnie and I were about to leave, his name is Brian, and our daughter's name is Elizabeth, and so when we were about to leave them, uh, we gathered in their living room. He was on the couch, and I said, I, I, we want to, let's pray together before before we leave. And so Minnie and I prayed with Brian and Elizabeth. And after we prayed, this is what he said to me. 
He said, Charlie, thank you, Mindy, for being here, for, for all your help. And he said, uh, he said, for the last couple of years, he said, I've really been angry and frustrated. There's some things, you know, he was, goes to a Southern Baptist church and he was really frustrated about the abuse stuff that had gone on in the convention and there was some bad stuff going on in their church and he just, and he said to me, he said, I've really kind of felt distant from the Lord, just angry and frustrated about a lot of things. But he said, you know what? He said, I'm actually thankful for this past week, he said, because it's helped me to hear God's voice again. It may be through your suffering and it may be through your trials and your difficulties that God intervenes and speaks to you in a personal way and reminds you of who he is and that he loves you and that he's for you and working in your life. I want to encourage you this morning, all of us, to abide in Jesus and to abide in his word, to abide in prayer and worship. I've come to realize that for most people, Life can be hard and life can be difficult at times and we struggle and it may times feel diff the, the challenge of pressing forward, of moving ahead. But I've also discovered there's no one like God and there's no one to care for us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to determine, to determine that we are going to abide in Christ. Let me tell you what that means for me, to abide in Christ. And there's different seasons where that abiding may look differently, but abiding in Christ to me means that I am going to work to keep my mind on Christ. And if that requires that I read his word in the morning and throughout the afternoon and 20 minutes at lunch and memorize scripture and read my Bible in the evening and pray whatever I need to do to keep my mind on the Lord, that's what it means to abide in Christ. It is a fierce determination to keep my mind and my heart set on the Lord. We need, we need the Lord. King Herod's reign did not take God by surprise. And so from the king, we come to the priest, a priest named Zacharias. We know very little about this priest. We know... In verse 5, that he was of the course, the division of Abijah. And if you remember, historically, if you know the Old Testament, all of the priests were descendants of Aaron. All the descendants of Aaron were priests. And it was esti estimated this time by the historian Josephus that there were over 20,000 priests in Israel. That's a lot of priests. That's a lot of preacher types. 20,000 priests and one temple. They were organized and divided into 24 groups. Zacharias served in the 8th group, the 8th division, and his division alone had more than 800 priests in it, which also means that each group only got to serve as a priest for one week, two times per year. So once a week, two times per year, 800 priests were vying for only a couple of spots of ministry and service in the temple. The point is it was very unlikely that Zacharias or any other priest would ever in their lifetime be chosen to burn incense in the temple. 
Zacharias, we also know from the Bible, made the good decision to marry Elizabeth. She also was a descendant of Aaron, and so he and Elizabeth married well. But notice in verses 6 and 7 how the Bible describes this couple. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And so they were righteous, they were pious, striving to keep God's commandments, to be faithful to his word, blameless, above reproach. They have a good reputation, a good name, but they had no child, and they were well advanced in years. The Bible says that Elizabeth was barren, both well advanced in years. The King James Version says it best. They were stricken in years. It's different than well advanced. They were stricken in years. The point is they had no chance of ever having a child now at this stage of life. No hope of change. Time had passed. They were old. It was too late. So each morning they got up and they sat together at the breakfast table for coffee. Zechariah says to Elizabeth, oh, I'm sore. My shoulder aches. My knee keeps popping. She said, I understand. And he listens to her neck crack. She says, you're old. You're stricken, old man. And he says, I know. Pass me the ibuprofen. (laughs) Things are wearing down. Parts are beginning to break. They're worn. They're not working the way they used to be. The old gray mares aren't what they once were. Zacharias, a devout priest, living a godly life, faithful to the Lord. And the Bible says in verse 9, lots were cast to see who might receive the privilege of serving in the temple, of offering this incense, and the lot fell to Zacharias. He was chosen. And of all the priestly assignments that he could ever achieve and receive in life, none were greater than leading this burning of offering of incense in the temple. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime moment for him. The fact is, also, once you were chosen to serve, to burn incense, to offer it in the temple, you were never chosen again. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Perhaps the most significant moment in his ministry Picture the scene. Once Zacharias is chosen, he would proceed into the temple accompanied by two assistants. One assistant would carry a a golden bowl with burning altars taken from the offering outside, and the other assistant would carry another golden bowl full of incense. And as Zacharias the priest led these two in, Two assistants into this holy place. The first assistant would take his bowl and the second assistant would pour the the incense onto those burning coals and then they would hand that bowl to Zacharias and they would remove themselves and then Zacharias with that golden bowl of burning coals and incense that was wafting upward to smoke, he would enter into this holy place. And he would wait. And then a signal would be given. There would be the ringing of some bells. And when those bells would ring, Zacharias would kneel in that holy place. And he would begin, as he held that bowl of burning incense, would begin to offer prayers on the part of Israel as a priest to intercede for God's people. 
the most important moment of his ministry, the greatest moment of his life. Can you think of any great moments in your life? If you're a pilot, perhaps the first time you ever flew an airplane. If you're a surgeon, perhaps the very first time you ever soloed and performed your first surgery. If you're a preacher, the first time you ever preached a sermon, I remember it well, it was terrible. (laughs) It was not a great moment for me. If you're married, perhaps when you stood together at the altar and exchanged vows and began your life together, this was a great moment for Zacharias. And he had to be thinking, I can't wait. I can't wait to get home and tell Elizabeth all that's transpired. The scene becomes even more dramatic that while Zacharias is kneeling in prayer from the king to the priest, to the angel. The Bible says in verse 11, when the angel appears, there's no description of this angel. It's just that this angel appears and I would urge you to be very, very careful when you read books and watch movies regarding angels with much of the information coming from people with fertile imaginations and no biblical references. There's a lot of bad information about angels and also a lot of bad information about us. And when we go to heaven, we become angels and we get our wings and it is so contrary to scripture. We are not angels and we're not ever told that we get wings and become angels in heaven. The Bible describes no, provides no description of this angel, but there is an immediate reaction on the part of Zacharias. The Bible says he's, When he sees this angel, he's gripped with fear, which always seems to be the biblical pattern when angels appear. You may think, well, not for me. If I saw an angel, I would say, good morning, angel. (laughs) Or hello, brilliant one. Or what's up? I don't think that's what any of us would do at all. The fact is, I think you and I would be moved with awe and crippled with fear, completely paralyzed, just like everyone else recorded in the scriptures. When Mary saw the angel, the Bible says she was greatly troubled. When the shepherds saw the angels, the Bible says they were terrified. So as Zacharias experienced this greatest moment in his priestly career and things become more intense, verse 13, he's confronted by this dazzling appearance of an angel, then hearing the words, don't be afraid, that seems to be the norm. And I believe that's the norm, really, because all of us are prone to fear. You know that I believe that God knows that your tendency and my tendency is to fear things. It's our nature. And I believe that God knows and understands that. Is there anything this morning that you fear? Is there anything that you are fearful of in your life? Some of you, are are you afraid of the future? Might be a young person afraid of the future and what you're going to do or decisions that you have to make or maybe in my stage of life, you're uncertain about what the next years are going to hold and how it's all going to work out. We have people, we have all kinds of anxieties and fears about the future. Fearful of getting sick or being sick. What's going to happen to us and 
fearful of losing our jobs or what's going to happen to the economy or fearful about our business or too fearful about our family and our loved ones and how things are going to work out in their lives. It's easy for a faith to weaken and give way to fears. But aren't you thankful and glad for God's providence that he sees us and sees to us that he knows the future of our lives. I'm thankful for his word. It's a powerful word, a life-changing and sure word. And I'm glad we can rest in his invitation. Come to me when you're weak and heavy laden and you're burdened and you're fearful and I will give you rest to take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest and peace for your soul. This is a great moment in Zechariah's life. The angel says to him, hey, Zach, your prayers are heard. He had to be thinking, what prayers? I haven't even finished praying. Let me ask you, what do you think Zacharias was praying? How many of you think that because him, he and Elizabeth were barren and there was a child, how many of you think that he was praying for a son, for a child, for a daughter? How many of you think that he was, as a priest, interceding for the children of Israel? Well, if I was grading a class and grading your responses, if you said, yes, I believe that he was praying and interceding for the people, I would give you an A. And if you said, I believe he was praying for a son, I'd probably give you a C or a D. Because I believe that he and Elizabeth had stopped praying for that. They had let go of that years and years before. You say, why? Because they were stricken. They were old, well-advanced in years sitting around in the mornings, drinking coffee, needing the time to get moving, you know, relying upon ibuprofen and Prilosec and statins and Ambien and Metamucil, and all of those things. And then comes the stunner, Zacharias. Elizabeth, your wife, is going to bear a son and you'll call his name John. He has to be stunned. I quit praying that years ago. I let go of that dream long ago. I stopped asking. But as a priest, he was praying for the salvation of Israel. And God's answer to this prayer is related to his prayer that he quit offering to the Lord years ago. Yes, you'll have a son. Elizabeth will bear him. And you'll name him John. And he's going to bring you and Elizabeth lots of joy. Well, that's good. And he's going to bring a lot of delight to other people. And he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He gets a son, and he's going to play a role in the salvation of Israel, exactly for what I do believe he is praying. Great in the sight of the Lord. Have you ever thought about that? Great in the sight of the Lord. How do you measure greatness? I watched a little series, mini-series this past week entitled, a history series entitled Men Who Made America Great and provided some background and insight into men like Cornelius Vanderbilt and John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie and, and J.P. Morgan and all of these great men in this country and never realized that they controlled the country, those four men through their businesses and their enterprises and their accumulation of wealth, they controlled the nation. They bought and sold presidencies. They controlled the economy. They had most of 
all the wealth in the entire country, those four individuals. And in the world's eyes, they were great. Well, what do you think they were in God's eyes? And if the history records about their lives are true and what was depicted, I don't think they were great, great in the sight of the Lord at all. What makes a person great in God's sight? You remember when Jesus introduced John, he said to him, there has not been born of women another man greater than John the Baptist. John was great. Isn't that odd? He dressed strange. He wore strange clothes. He ate weird foods. He wasn't reserved. He wasn't eloquent. But in God's sight, he was great. What do you think impresses God? What can you do? What can you be in order to impress God? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing we'll ever do. There's ever nothing we'll ever be that impresses God. You know what? I believe the answer to that is biblically, what impresses God is humility. Humility, a sense of my own nothingness, a sense of my own emptiness. The Bible says the sacrifice that is acceptable to God is a broken and contrite spirit. When someone asks John, who are you? We'd like to interview you. We would like to write an article about you and invite you to speak at our evangelism conference that's coming up. Tell us about yourself, John. He probably said something like, I'm just a voice crying out. I'm just a light shining. I'm a finger pointing all of it to Christ. John said, I am nothing. I am no one. He is everything. I'm not worthy to loosen his, the, the laces of his sandals. I must decrease. He must increase. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was humble. If we only we could let go of ourselves and let go of control and trust God to fully surrender our lives to him, the angel says of John, he will derive power from the Holy Spirit. He will turn many to God and families will be helped by the ministry, the life of John the Baptist. And if you see that in verse 16 and 17, don't overlook the order. He will help people focus on God first. He will help Israel turn back to God, to turn to Christ, and as a result, families and people would be restored and helped, which means the gospel is the foundation for all other areas of life. John's call is for people to get into a right relationship with God through repentance and faith. That was his message. And if by chance you're listening this morning here and you're wondering, how do I get my life in a right relationship with God? And maybe there's some things going on in your life that are chaotic and they're not the way they should be. There's perhaps some sins and some other things and perhaps you at times may even feel like your life is a mess. Where do I start? How do I get things back on track? The place to start is through repentance and faith. To get your relationship with God right first, that's first, and all other things are secondary. After this angel stops speaking, and if 
you'll notice Zach's response is what? It's not full of faith. Zacharias responds and says to the angel, I don't believe you. There's, there's no way this can ever happen. He can't get over his age. He can't get over the fact that he's old. Have you ever noticed that old people start doing that? They start referring to themselves as old, talking that I'm old, I'm old, I'm old, I can't do that, you know. And I, I just was thinking about this week. I told many this week, so I'm never saying that again. I don't care if I become 80 years old, 90 years old, if God's gracious, I live along, I am never referring to myself as an old man anymore. Just let the, I guess let the results speak for themselves without me having to. <laughs> I'm an old man. I'm stricken in years. There's no way this could ever transpire. And guess what the angel says back to him? Yeah, you're an old man, John, but I'm an angel. I'm Gabriel, and I've just been standing in the presence of God and I've been sent here to deliver a word from the Lord to you and since you don't believe the message, I tell you what I'm gonna do, John, to help you to believe. You're not gonna like it, but it's for your own good. From this point forward, you will become mute until the day that this word is fulfilled. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And while this is going on in the inside and he's offering these prayers and He's having this conversation, this dialogue with this angel on the outside. People are standing around waiting, probably getting tired. The Bible says he doesn't come out. He stays inside the holy place for a long time. Priests, usually after they offered the prayer and burned the incense, they hustled right out of that holy place. And then they would offer that benediction from Numbers 30. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you his peace. Zacharias doesn't come out. The people are waiting to hear the benediction. <laughs> Arms lifted in prayer on the outside. One fellow turns to the other fellow and says, the bell did ring, right? He said, yeah, it rang a long time ago. And they start wondering, well, where is Zacharias? And uh, when, when is this thing going to be over? Do you think we should leave? No, well, if you hadn't insisted that we stand in the front, we could have slipped out the back. Do you think he's still alive in that place? The Bible says he was in there a long, long time, and he finally comes out, and guess what? There was no benediction, no blessing. They're waiting to hear the service to be closed, and there's just motions. That's all, that's all that he could get across. And his excitement to go home and tell Elizabeth, you know, you picture that scene, right? He can't talk, he can't speak. He comes in the front door and Elizabeth says, hello, dear, is that you? There's silence. How was your day? No word. You okay? Never says anything to her. He gets a notepad pen and paper and begins to write out. Can you, can you imagine trying to write that out to your spouse to convey what you have just experienced? Eventually, many days pass. Word gets around the neighborhood, the community about Zacharias. He can't speak. He has no voice. He's not sure if he'll ever remain a functioning priest any longer. One day, the Screen door opens and Zach Elizabeth walks inside and she can speak. <laughs> and she says, well, I just came from the doctor and what you wrote 
I got to be honest, I didn't sure I really believe that, but Zacharias, what you wrote's come to pass. We're going to have a child. I'm pregnant. God is working, answering their prayers, prayers for the salvation of Israel, answering in a way that they could have never imagined. Let me close with a couple of remarks, a couple of closing remarks, observations from the text for application. I didn't go into a lot of detail, but first, just number one, very briefly, you see the example of a godly marriage in the text. Both Elizabeth and Zacharias are righteous, they're devout, devoted to serving God, to keep his commandments, to be faithful. They're caring for each other, and through them, they bless other people. What's the point? Keep Christ at the center. Keep Christ at the center. How do you do that? By you individually staying focused on the Lord and building your home, building your relationship around the Lord Jesus Christ. Your interests will align. Your affections will be in sync. You'll go closer and closer as a couple in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're struggling here and you're married, you can't go back, you can't undo things once they've been said once, but what you can is you can move forward and make a commitment. You can't change your spouse, you can't fix your spouse. What you can do is take responsibility for yourself and your walk with Christ and start there. God will bless you. Number two, regarding these people, they do more than just to show up during the time of worship. They engage. They engage. They're praying as they gather for worship in communion with God. They're not just attending. They're not just going through the motions. I hope that as you prepare for worship, corporate worship with your church family and, and those in your Sunday school class, your group, that you'll prepare and you'll engage. Number three, we see the necessity of conversion among those who say they believe. The necessity of conversion. In verse 16, the Bible says the ministry of the John the Baptist was to bring God's people into a right relationship with God. They were God's people, but they were not in a right relationship with God. God's people, those Jewish people, viewed themselves as belonging to God. They knew God's laws. They carried God's name. They knew about God and how he had worked in their history, but they were not converted. They were not converted. They were not living by faith. Let me ask you a question. Do you think attending church makes you a Christian? I'm glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Do you think sitting in a garage makes you an automobile? Attending church is a commandment of Scripture. Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves as has become the habit of many. Is nominal Christianity Christianity? Nominal Christianity? I don't think it's Christianity at all. Do you know for sure this morning that you are saved that you are converted, 
that you are regenerate, that God has brought you to life from death to life, and you have new desires and new longings and new affections. You have a hunger and a thirst for God. You long for, the, for his word to worship him and to honor him and to glorify him in your life and in your marriage and in your family and your finances and every aspect of your life. That's conversion. That's what you see in the New Testament. That's all you see in the New Testament. Are you converted? Do you know Christ? Have you been saved? Not that have you grown up in church. Not that do you know Bible stories. Not because you, do you know Christ? Are you saved? Jesus said, unless you become converted and become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the last observation is the warning against an unbelieving heart like Zacharias. Zacharias' response to God was unbelief. And he was struck dumb. All of us are prone to doubt, to doubt God's word, to prone to doubt his faithfulness and his providence. But listen to Hebrews 3, verse 12. Brethren, there's a warning. To God's people, brethren, beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Let's pray together.